Hello, everybody. This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Thank you all for joining me as we embark on a new bend in our narrative, a new season of the podcast in which we do a little world building, if you will. On season five, entitled The Mediterranean Prepares, we will begin our buildup to the first in a series of events that will define European and Arab relations for the following 1,000 years. That's right, you guessed it, the First Crusades. On this season of the podcast, we're going to make like the Vikings we've learned so much about already, and we will push the boundaries of medieval European history by heading, well, outside Europe. History does not occur in a vacuum, and despite Christianity and its sleeper hold on Europe since the 11th century, other peoples and cultures and religions have helped to put definite edges, if you will, to what it was to be European, all the way to the present day. Before we begin, though, I'd like to give a shout-out, a very special shout-out, I might add, to Amanda, the show's first Patreon supporter. Thank you, Amanda, for believing in what this show is all about. If you, dear listener, would like to join our Fortune's Wheel Patreon community, just follow the link, like Amanda did, in the show notes to our Patreon page. And I should add that we have a handful of Patreon members-only episodes already published, and we have just launched a new series on the early evolution of Poland. Again, available for just a few bucks a month. Okay. So onward and upward, shall we? Today's episode, episode 55, is entitled Scattered Pearls. I hope you enjoy the show. To put it bluntly, there was nothing that compared to Cordoba in the 10th and 11th centuries. It was a beautiful jewel in a rather mundane crown that was Europe at the time. There was, I say again, nothing like it. More than 2,000 years ago, the Romans settled there along the banks of the Guadalquivir River, though they didn't call it the Guadalquivir. In fact, the river was called the Certus by the natives when the Romans moved in. Then, it was renamed Beatis, which was the basis for the Latin name for Iberia as a whole, Hispania Beatica. That is a testament, I suppose, to the river we now call the Guadalquivir, which in its modern form is from the Arabic term Al-Vadi-i-Kabir, meaning the Great River. It's more than 400 miles stretches from the Cañada de las Fuentes in the southeast of the Iberian Peninsula to the Atlantic Ocean in the southwest, snaking its entire way to the, sea, to the sea. Major modern cities like Seville and Cordoba lie along its banks today. But a thousand years ago, much of its banks were pockmarked by very small villages and towns seeking to take advantage of the river's two major ports in the south center of the peninsula, those same cities of Cordoba and Seville. And though Seville is the larger and more prominent city today, a thousand years ago there's no question that Cordoba shone far brighter. In fact, as I alluded to it at the top of the show, at the turn of the first millennium, 
There was really no other city west of Constantinople that even came close to the magnificence of Cordoba. Just let that sink in for a moment. Now, it's worth noting that Cordoba had three major leaders during its golden age, and the first two were magnificent, as seen through the lens of a thousand years in the future. But we will start our story with the grandson of this first great caliph in Cordoba. His name was Hisham II, and he was a boy-king sort of character in late 10th century history of Iberia. In fact, he was so quite stereotypically a boy-king character, insofar that he was manipulated by a less-than-scrupulous advisor who essentially said to him, Listen, I got this. You go off and you be a good boy. Have fun. Go crazy. Spend some money. Spend some money to your heart's desire. I'll handle this boring business stuff until you're ready to take over. Yeah. Well, as the age-old story goes, Hisham never really was given the chance to take over because this advisor kept the young caliph locked up in his palace with all the luxuries that he needed, and he fulfilled every desire as he possibly could. Hardship brings out the best of us, and the best of us usually resembles the discovery of what we truly are capable of. Overcoming such hardships is what allows the human potential to emerge, am I right? Well, this advisor, by not showing the young ruler the hardships of ruling over a kingdom, kept Hisham happy and oblivious, by and large. So, with the true ruler tucked away and comfortable, this advisor could run the show with no real authority over him. This advisor's name was Muhammad ibn Abi Amir, but he quickly, after the defeat of Hisham's father's favorite general, who, by the way, was also Hisham's son-in-law. His name was Galib al-Nasiri in 981. Well, this advisor took over with a new name. History knows him today simply as Al-Manzor, which in its original Arabic was Al-Mansur ibn Allah, translated to Victorious by the Grace of God. Now, this Galib guy is a pretty interesting guy, too, so I don't want to just gloss over him. Galib al-Nasiri was a Slavic slave, actually, indicating the Muslim trade in slaves was securely active in this time period. As I said on the podcast before, slavery was rampant during these centuries surrounding the turn of the millennium. It wasn't just the Scandinavians and the English and the Rus and the Byzantines who had a stranglehold on the slave markets across medieval Europe. No. In fact, Muslims from Cordoba to Baghdad engaged in the market just as vigorously. And as we'll soon see, sub-Saharan West Africans are also documented to have participated in the buying and selling of humans across the same markets as their northern neighbors. So, this Galib guy. Galib the the Slav sold to Caliph Abid al-Rahman III, sometime between the Caliph's extremely long reign of 912 and 961, had arisen through the ranks of the Cordoban military, and at some point became al-Rahman's the third's most trusted. Galib was so trusted that Al-Rahman III let this white Slavic man marry his own daughter. At first, this was an affront to the ruling elite in Cordoba. However, Galib quickly earned everyone's trust to some extent, 
as constantly coming through for the rising Cordoban military supremacy on the peninsula. That is, again, until 981, when the now 80-some-year-old General Galib rode into battle against the man who would soon be called Almanzor by his Christian Iberian adversaries. Things seemed to be going well for the old general. He might, might have very well defended his nephew-in-law's rule in the end, until he was thrown from a horse. That's right, this 80-year-old warrior, Galib, was still riding into the thick of battle, if you can believe it. You probably wouldn't see too many Twitter jockeys doing that these days. Being thrown to the ground caused, as you can imagine, fatal injuries. He succumbed to his injuries on the field of battle shortly afterward, and his forces quickly fell apart. Hisham's defenders were no more. Almanzor would make his ascendancy over the next 19 years, and during those 19 years, Iberia as a whole would know very clearly who was in charge of Cordoba. His principal targets in Christian Iberia were the kingdoms of Leon and Castile. Various city-states, such as Barcelona, were also sacked under his direction. However, the worst by far, at least to the Christian sentiment, came in 997, when Almanzor went deep into northwestern Christian kingdom of Galicia. Not only was this a devastatingly brutal invasion, it culminated in the plundering and destruction of one of the holiest sites in all of Christendom, a site that had recently become one of the biggest pilgrimage destinations in all of Europe and the Middle East. It's called Santiago de Compostela. Santiago de Compostela held a very revered and guarded place in the Christian heart, as it was the resting place of one of the twelve apostles of Jesus. Roughly 950 years before Almanzor's attack on Galicia, in the year 44 CE, an apostle named James the Greater, son of Zebedee and Salome, as well as the brother of the youngest apostle, John, became the first apostle to be martyred in the name of Jesus' teachings. Christians during the first millennium held his martyrdom as a pivotal moment when Christianity was finally recognized as a serious threat to the ruling Roman establishment and thus given legitimacy. Tradition has it that over the centuries, St. James's remains made their way to northwestern Iberia where a cathedral was erected around his new grave. Over the centuries, Santiago de Compostela became one of the holiest places, as I said, in all of Christendom, and remains that to this day. So you can imagine the outrage, though I dare say there is no word to accurately describe the Christian reaction to this monstrosity, when Almanzor specifically targeted this cathedral and then stole the cathedral bells, which can be interpreted as a direct affront to the idea of, you know, bells as a call to Christianity of sorts. What's more is that Almanzor had these cathedral bells brought back to Cordoba, melted down, and then remade into the lanterns lighting the great mosque of Cordoba. However, to give credit where it's due, Almanzor wasn't exactly leading some type of holy war or jihad against his northern neighbors, not this time anyway. To some degree, he respected the traditions enough to have his personal guards stand watch over the cathedral itself, 
while the rest of the town was plundered and razed to the ground. In essence, he was the only one with the authority to take from the cathedral. Now, one could hold an entire series about Almanzor, but for our purposes here, we have the gist of his reign as vizier to Hisham II. He was tyrannical in so many ways, most notably as keeping his own caliph locked away and ignorant of the goings-on of his realm. He ran raids against every Christian kingdom to his north, some of those invasions as merely the pokes and prods of a larger force keeping a smaller force cowed and subdued, while other times he led jihad against his neighbors. Either way you slice that Almanzor was a force to be reckoned with in the late 10th century. There was simply no two ways about it. With the nearly endless resources of the Cordoban court at his disposal, Christians around Iberia feared this man greatly. In fact, before Almanzor's rule, Muslims, Jews, Christians, they all achieved a sort of harmony throughout the Cordoba Caliphate. And I don't mean harmony in some naive sort of way. I mean harmony in the, I suppose, musical sort of way. As in, these three different groups of people worked side by side and worked off of each other's shortcomings while pushing forward each other's strengths for the greater good. Now, it certainly wasn't some Shangri-La in Cordoba, a mythical, you know, utopia of peace and tranquility, far from it. But it seems that they, under Muslim rule, mind you, were able to achieve some semblance of camaraderie in Cordoban society. There were, as an example, many Jews and Christians serving in very high positions in the caliphate. But when Almanzor took over, things like that shifted seismically. Jews and Christians weren't exactly run out of town, well, not yet anyway, but they were taxed more and more and they were relieved of their duties in their positions in the caliph's service. This, during Almanzor's 20-plus year reign, certainly did Cordoba no favors. Christians within the caliphate began leaving in droves, while the Christians in the northern Iberian kingdoms began growing in their resentment toward their southern neighbors. Christians in the borderlands, in fact, became incredibly resentful, as you can imagine. So, cutting some corners and getting straight to the point here, nearly all of the Christian kings and leaders in Iberia around the year 1000 CE, entered into alliances to stand against Almanzor's Cordoba. This would spell the beginning of the end for the vizier. On August 9th, 1002, Almanzor actually, well, he died from an illness. Initially, one would have thought that things would continue in much the same way because Almanzor's eldest son took his father's place as vizier, but his reign didn't last too much longer, and in 1008, just six years later, he too died. After him, beginning in October of 1008, Almanzor's youngest son, Abid al-Rahman, yes, another one, ironically, well, this al-Rahman took over. Keep in mind, Hisham II, the true caliph, well, he's still alive, and he's still being held in his royal palace of all these, you know, all of these years. But he's since learned what's actually happening, and upon the death of Almanzor, Hisham II had been making inroads with allies on the outside and plotting his, well, would you even by definition call it a usurpation? I don't know. 
Well, Hisham II was looking to break out and take back the reins of, of his caliphate, but it seems like the damage had already been done. See, during Almanzor's many raids into the northern kingdoms, he had secured the marriage to the daughter of the king of Navarre, a Christian kingdom. From her, his son, the same Abd al-Rahman, was born. Now, Abd al-Rahman, this new vizier, Almanzor's youngest son again, was half Arab Muslim and half Christian Navarrese. He held an interesting place in the Iberian power structure, for sure. This wouldn't matter, however, because he was murdered almost as soon as he took over the caliphate. Now, what immediately ensued would reverberate for decades, and I mean that, for decades. It was a civil war that came to be called the Fitna of Al-Andalus. Remember, Al-Andalus, just as you know, a friendly reminder, was the name for Muslim Iberia. Now, this civil war, this fitna, was a tragedy for Muslim Iberia, in all actuality. An absolute tragedy. Though the tragedy wouldn't be fully realized for decades to come. The caliphate essentially collapsed before everyone's eyes. I mean, it wasn't some slow-burn sort of collapse, either. It was immediate, and it was unflinching. And those who were born, say, in 1002, when Almanzor died might have lived to see the day when Toledo finally fell once and for all in 1085, making this collapse within a generation or two, something akin to what we'll soon see in England post-conquest. Now, the cities and towns that existed within the Cordoba Caliphate, places such as Seville, Cordoba, Toledo, Zaragoza, Malaga, Granada, and Valencia were all now vying for supremacy in those post-Caliph days in the mid-1010s. Cordoba was still incredibly prosperous. The powers, however, shifted away from this iconic city, and we would soon see the cities I just mentioned above become full-fledged city-states. These walled cities built up bigger and, and better fortifications, raised their own local armies, and led raids and conquests of invasion into their neighbors' territories. It was a mad dash for control, and they all knew that it would slow down soon, so they tried their best to gobble up as much as they could while they had the opportunity. Seville seems to have quickly become the big dog on the block in almost the blink of an eye, but that's mainly, again, due to Cordoba's decrease in influence. See, Cordoba is in, the south, is in south central Iberia, just south of the Sierra Morena mountain range. And when the caliphate collapsed, it took the Christian kingdoms to the north, the ones who had suffered constant harrying by the forces under Almanzor and his sons for the last three to four decades. Well, it took them no time at all to realize the opportunity in front of them. Toledo was a Muslim stronghold straight north of Cordoba but even it would change hands over the next several decades. However, Cordoba was still in serious danger of falling to the vengeful Christian kings. The powers that be scattered from cities like Toledo and Cordoba, thus allowing those like Seville to rise to prominence. And here's just a quick vocab word for you all, one that you'll see again and again. Taifa. 
which is the name for all Muslim-ruled city-states in Iberia following the collapse of the Cordoba Caliphate in the early 11th century. Now, in fact, though, going back to what we were saying, scattering is an appropriate word for it. As one Andalusi poet once described the fall of Cordoba and the creation of these taifa states as, quote, the breaking of the necklace and the scattering of its pearls, end quote. This fitna al-Andalus was a dangerous time, as you can imagine, in southern Iberia at the turn of the millennium. Things seemed to have been going fairly well under the tolerant, educated, and pretty stable leadership of the line of Abd al-Rahman I for the better part of a century. But it's a lesson to history, to us all today even, that when things seem to be going smoothly, we should all be more on guard than we are relaxed. When people's attentions are elsewhere, off of the things that allowed such comfort and wealth and culture in the first place, then you can bet your bottom dollar there's some malevolent force waiting in the wings to swoop in and take advantage of everyone's eyes on their cell phones. When we look at Almanzor's reign as a whole, we see an, an immensely powerful usurper who took advantage of the opportunities presented to him. And his choice to capitalize on these opportunities for his own personal gain spelled the end to an otherwise prosperous and, comparatively speaking, peaceful rule in Cordoba. It's a sad ending, actually, to such an illustrious beacon of tolerance and light and culture and academic pursuit during the Middle Ages. An event I would personally, you know, armchair quarterbacking, personally put it up there with the burning of the Library of Alexandria in terms of lost potential. Again, a lesson for us all. One person can bring down even the best of human endeavors. Thank you all for listening and supporting the show. If you enjoy this content and feel others should too, then please head over to Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, wherever you download your podcasts, and please leave a five-star review. You know, I used to think that that was just something podcasters say to read some reviews, but it's actually the opposite of that. Your reviews helped catapult podcasts to the front pages of podcast services. So the more reviews this podcast gets, the higher up the lists will get. Also, if you believe in what this podcast is doing, please consider heading over to Patreon and becoming a supporting listener. Again, we just launched a new members-only series about the rise of Poland in the 10th and 11th centuries, which I'm super excited about, and I hope you are too. So just remember, every dime that comes in through Patreon is put straight back to the show, and this will allow you know, me to create better and better content and more content for you. And finally, a last big shout out to Amanda. You rock. Thank you so much. <laughs>